Chairs of Medicine and Days, and Sean Murphy. My pleasure to welcome the podcast, Dr. Diamori. Dr. Diamori is affiliated with the University of Pittsburgh, also remit in Italy. Dr. Diamori, welcome to Chairs of Medicine and Days. Thank you, John, and thanks for the invite. Let's begin by you can tell us a little bit about your scientific interests. My scientific interest is on cardiac tissue engineering. In particular, what we try to do in the lab is to implement a biomimetic approach. And even more specific, what we try to do is to duplicate physical properties of native tissue that can be of interest for cardiac repair or replacement. And one of your focus areas is cardiac tissue engineering, heart valves, is that correct? Correct. What's the state of the art of tissue engineered heart valves? Well, the typical pitch that uh, everyone in the field does starts with commenting on the limitation of commercially available devices, which are very well designed devices. They fall into two different categories. One is the mechanical valve. Uh, mostly made of metal, and the second one are the bioprosthetic devices that are mostly made of tissue that is obtained from animals. So in the first category, what you normally experience is a very good longevity of the device, but this metallic device comes with the burden of anticoagulation therapy. Essentially, the patient has to undergo anticoagulation therapy for the rest of his life. The second category instead suffer from a different type of limitation, which is durability. So most of these devices tend to fail between 5 and 15 years from the implant. And this is due to a number of degenerative mechanisms. One very common one is calcific degeneration. So the big goal of tissue engineering... uh, Starting in 1996, I think the first attempt was run by the Meyer Lab in Harvard in 1996. So the, the, the goal is to overcome these two major limitations by using synthetic material that, by definition, don't suffer of calcific degeneration, and we might discuss on why they don't. And two, they don't need anticoagulation therapy because, in essence, they get populated by cells that are recruited from the host, and in particular by endothelial cells that create a relatively stable layer of cells on the surface of the device, and that essentially prevents the formation of thrombus or clots. So the patient doesn't need anticoagulation therapy. There is a third advantage in this approach, which is the capacity to grow and remodel, which becomes particularly interesting for the pediatric population or for young patients, because the device doesn't suffer of the classic uh, limitation of not readjusting to somatic growth. So three main advantages to sum up within the tissue engineering approach. No need for anticoagulation, reduced risk of calcific degeneration, capacity to grow and remodel. This is, I think, is a good summary, but there are other approaches I want to stress that the tissue engineering approach is not the only approach that promises to overcome current limitations of commercially available devices. And what's the status of this technology? So there are probably 10 and 20 groups that are more advanced in the world in terms of preclinical models. 
systems or having the capacity to implant successfully a device. There is only one clinical trial that is currently ongoing and is the trial that initiated, actually the second trial by Xeltis. UPNC is actually one of the institutions that participated to the trials. And we still need to see the full report of this trial. I want to stress for those that are listening that are not too familiar with the topic, or for the skeptics, for those that are very familiar with the topics and don't believe much. And this, it is actually a very challenging target to have a device that fully regenerate in such a mechanically demanding environment. So I wanted to stress that this is a relatively young technology. It's a relatively young field of science. Again, the very, very first attempt goes back to 1996, and it wasn't even a full valve. It was a single leaflet. Which cell were you focusing on? So what we tried to develop, rather than focusing on one valve, uh, was to develop a processing platform, advanced polymer processing platform, that allows to essentially build uh, one of the four different valves, the mitral, tricuspid, polymer, and aortic. The name of the platform is Double Component Deposition. It's essentially a new way of looking at uh, electrodeposition using uh, electrodes for collecting the polymer that are made of two different materials. One can use electricity pretty well, one doesn't. And this allows to obtain very complex geometry, anatomy-inspired geometries, on devices that are actually uh, made of microscopic filament talking about 0, 0,1, 5 micrometers in size. So to respond to your question, we're really not focusing strictly on one specific valve. We have projects actually on the four valves. So we have one ongoing project on the mitral valve, which was actually funded by the European community. We've hosted the RIMED Foundation in Italy, where my main lab is located. And this project is looking at a new notion for a mitral device, and we can talk more about it. We have another project, which is mostly running in Pittsburgh on uh, pulmonary valve. And in this case, we are testing the possibility of combining a degradable polymer with a degradable metal. And also, we completed a project on the tricuspid valve, so completed and published. And similarly to the mitral valve project, that device is a stentless device which get mechanically connected to the ventricle through artificial cord. What's unique about the polymer that you're using to build these valves? So these are all biodegradable, biocomparable polyurethanes developed by the Wagner lab. My focus is different from the focus in the Wagner lab. Dr. Wagner has mastered over the years the synthesis of these polymers and the way these polymers can be adapted to different scenarios, for instance, making them more resistant to thrombus formation. My job is more to give the proper shape and the proper physical properties. So the quick answer to your question, though, is these are all uh, biodegradable, biocompatible polyurethanes. The mitral valve project, which again is funded by the European Research Council, is focusing mostly on one notion, which is connecting mechanically the mitral valve with the ventricle to address uh, secondary regurgitation. 
secondary regurgitation is also known as functional. In essence, it's not a disease of the leaflet, it's a disease of the ventricle that ultimately leads to a malfunctional mitral valve. The notion in that project is to connect the valve with an artificial cord to the ventricle with an artificial cord. Now, there is a commercial device named Tendine that does something similar, but it doesn't do using the tissue engineering approach. So that's where we go with that specific project, which is addressing secondary regurgitation with a device that can regenerate the tissue engineering approach is promising, but at the same time, they can mechanically connect ventricle with valve. That's one target. So the pulmonary valve project, the target is the same. It's more proof of concept. It's showing that uh, if you're aiming to a device that can fully degrade in the body, but you also need the mechanical stability provided by a stent, you can combine this new class of materials, and we do this in collaboration with Dr. Bressoni at the University of Cincinnati. So you can combine a degradable polymer with a degradable alloy. And then there is a third arm of research in this segment, which is looking at the impact of biomimicry, really posing very simple questions. So we identify key parameters for the valve design, for instance, the thickness, and we want to show what is the impact of duplicating the thickness or the physical properties that you find on the native leaflet on the efficacy of the device. I want to provide you a simple example. We will implant two different groups. One as a leaflet with thickness that are much larger than the physiological thickness. That's what every commercial device does. And another group where the thickness is strictly duplicating the native tissue thickness. And then we'll study the impact of these features. Clearly, it's more than one. I'm just making one example. On the capacity of the system to grow and remodel and to provide good function from the beginning to the end of the process. So three different targets for three different projects. So do you plan on the clinical trials for any of these cells? That's how I was trained in the Gowan. That's what we aim for. Clearly, this is a very, very long process, which most of the time doesn't lead to a clinical trial, but I think it should be the dream of every scientist. And it's definitely the dream of every scientist that has been trained putting this notion of translation first. And we are getting closer and closer because especially for the pulmonary valve project, we are collecting now robust data a chronic level. So the last four explants we completed this month, actually, looking at three months time point and we have 100% survival rate. So what's the plan for moving forward? Well, the plan to moving forward is to have robust numbers, so to increase the numbers of the actual number of animals, and then to look at the six-month time point. We also founded the company the first uh, University of Pittsburgh Rinded Foundation startup. So it's really one of the results of this beautiful partnership between UPNC and UPNC Italy. UPNC has um, created major infrastructure in Italy, in particular five different hospitals and a research center that is about to be completed this year. And one of the results of this collaboration is the foundation of the startup, which is based on uh, co-owned uh, intellectual property. So the next step is to leverage on this uh, three months data 
and eventually to get six months data to obtain larger funds towards the clinical trial. So Dr. Diamori, this is very promising. It seems that there's a lot of work to do before this is clinically available. This looks like it's another three or three or four years before something might be clinically available. Probably, but if I look at the past, you know, if we move more towards a discussion of my career, I would say the most is done. This started really sketching on a blackboard with a chalk, and probably in the 2008, when I start as a PhD student, I'm pretty optimistic. Again, I'm convinced that now we have a strong uh, processing platform and the rest is heavy lifting. It's generating data that are convincing enough for a larger investment to come and just keep implementing the program. I assume there's lots of intellectual property behind this. I don't know if it's a lot, but there are three issued U.S. patents and two of these three are also issued in Europe and Canada. And there are probably five or six more international PCT, which are still not issued, that are related to this technology. There are different permutations on the same notion of electrode deposition. Which, again, it can be applied visually to every object. So the main patent covers meniscus, trachea, large blood vessel, ventricle wall, a little bit of everything. So, as I understand, there's some congratulations in, in order. You recently were elected to the National Academy of Inventors, and you also received your U.S. citizenship. Congratulations on both counts. Thank you. Especially the National Academy of Inventors, of course, is a great recognition of not just my work, but the work done as a team, as a group, as a community. It is really true that. It takes a village to raise a child, and when I moved to McGowan in 2008 as a student, I had zero patents and zero publications, and so this is a good moment to stop and thank mentors, colleagues, trainees. In parallel to that, there was a personal journey that led me to become a U.S. citizen. I think this is even a more important accomplishment also because it was a personal choice. No matter where my life and career will bring me, I choose to be American, and I choose to be American because my experience here as a human being has been extremely compelling. And without telling stories that are probably too long to be listened, what I loved about this part of the journey was to really experience a new way of living where identity is really at the center of society, and that is the best frame for a scientist that has to feed and grow and create his own scientific identity. And it's a very nice coincidence that a number of professional results are coming together on exactly when the citizenship came in the timeline. Congratulations. Dr. Diamori, thank you for joining us today and sharing your pioneering work. We wish you success in your continued efforts to develop new technologies to help issues people are experiencing in health. Thank the McGowan Institute for Genetic Medicine for sponsoring this podcast series. Until we meet again, thank you. For-